Thanks for being here today. Uh, as we conclude the book of Ruth, uh, since it's the last day, uh, let me just let, um, let you be aware that we do have some Ruth resources that we've uh, tried to um, make available to you throughout this series, but this is the last sermon through the book of Ruth, and so we have plenty of these scripture journals left over. Um, you're welcome to take one of these for any donation amount. I think at the beginning of the sermon series, we offered these for $5 each, but I think we still have 15 or 20 of these left, and so uh, if you would find this valuable. It's just the entire text of Ruth in, uh, in a single book with plenty of blank uh, journal pages. You just take one of these and uh, they're available on the soapstone as you walk out of the door. Um, and you can just make any donation um, in the offering box and feel free to take one of those. Uh, we have two left of this book. We I think we ordered 15 or 20 of these books. Um, a Loving Life, um, the author of A Praying Life, Paul Miller. Um, a Loving Life uses the book of Ruth as um, a template and goes through the entire book of Ruth and describes how to love in a world of broken relationships. And that's been a really, really good book. Uh, I can't tell you enough how much I've benefited from all the commentaries and the books that I've read. Um, I've really appreciated working through the book of Ruth. It has shown me more than, um, in a long time, more than any other Old Testament book, the long shadow that the gospel casts and points pointing forward to Jesus, the Redeemer, as we look at Boaz, the kinsman Redeemer. Um, I've just been really encouraged by the text in Ruth, and I'm uh, honestly kind of sad to see it go. I stretched Jude, you know, one chapter out into 12 sermons, and I, I did Ruth, um, I did all of chapter 3 in one, in one sermon, I think, uh, and that's, uh, that's a lot for me, so usually I like to stretch these out, but eight weeks in Ruth has been um, a real blessing to me, and today we finish it. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Ruth chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 22. If you're new to the Bible, you have uh, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's called the Pentateuch. Um, if Jesus referred to it, he referred to it as the law, the prophets, and the writings, but oftentimes they would shorthand that, and Jesus would not have called this the Bible. He would have just shorthanded it and said the law, and that would have referred to the law, the, the prophets, and the writings, the entire 22 books of the Old Testament that we know of as the Old Testament, that would have been Jesus's scriptures. Uh, and Joshua judges Ruth. So Ruth is the eighth book in our Bible. You said, well, Gibson, the Old Testament has 39 books, not 22, but uh, the way the Hebrews uh, arranged their Bible, it was arranged in that order of the law the prophets, and then the writings, and they condensed many of these books uh, into 22 scrolls, not even really bound, but they would have just been scrolls, and there were 22 of them that they considered uh, scriptural. We contain all of those in our Old Testament, but we separate Ezra and Nehemiah. We separate the Chronicles, the Kings, Samuel, and some other books. So that's a whole lot about, uh, about nothing right there. <clears throat> You're welcome. Ruth chapter 4, let's read verses 13 through 22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. 
Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that every word is inspired. It is breathed out by God and inspired by your Holy Spirit, who, as Peter told us, carried men along as they wrote, as though your spirit filled them like a sail, pushing them along, carrying them along so that they could write your words. We thank you that the word is breathed out by you, uh, that you are its ultimate author. And so we praise you for your word. We know that by all things, um, all things were created by your word. And so that if you can create everything from nothing using just words, we understand that your word is living and active. It is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is able to divide and to penetrate between bone and marrow and soul and spirit. All that means to us is that your word is powerful, and we honor you through your word today. It's our prayer that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, like James prays. Um, a man or a woman who just hears the word is like a person who looks in the mirror at their face intently and then walks away forgetting what they look like. Uh, Jesus, you also described the person who only hears the word as a person who builds a house on the beach on the sandy part, so that when the storms of life hit, it crashes. But you also say that the one who hears these words of yours and puts them into practice is careful not just to understand them, but to apply them to their life is like a person who builds their house on solid rock, so that when the storms and trials and difficult circumstances in life hit, that person's life remains intact because of the word that they have put into practice. Let us be doers of your word and not hearers only. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, like I said earlier, this is the conclusion to the book of Ruth. Uh, at the end of the book here, we have Naomi. She's blessed with a brand new family. Um, and this conclusion serves as the reversal of the introduction. The very introduction of the book of Ruth, she has a husband named Elimelech, uh, two kids named Malon and Kilion. And in the course of their wandering, their sinful, rebellious wandering into the foreign nation of Moab, Malon, Kilion, and Elimelech, they all die. And so Naomi is left childless. She doesn't have any grandchildren. Her two daughters-in-law both are barren and unable to have children at that time. Um, Orpah stays back in Moab. Uh, Ruth decides to come with Naomi to, uh, to back to Israel, back to Bethlehem. And at the end of this book, we read in this last paragraph or two, that Naomi's life is restored. Um, it's not a fairy tale ending. Uh, it's not like a sitcom ending. Uh, and, and our culture kind of likes that. We like when things, all the bad things make sense at the end, and all the bad things are worked together into like this beautiful fairy tale story. But it's not like that. Um, the ending to Ruth is a redemptive 
story to, no, to, to Naomi. And there's a difference between a redemption story and, uh, and a fairy tale, happy ending kind of story. A redemptive story, oftentimes in Scripture, we don't get all the answers, do we? God doesn't always tie up all the loose ends and, and show you uh, all the evil is gone and, and the messes are all cleaned up and everybody's happy and everything is restored. You almost leave the end of Ruth um, in the same way that you read Job, right? If you read through the, the book of Job where the first two or three chapters, Job isn't a part of these cosmic conversations that are happening between Satan and God and this contest. Um, the next thing you know, Job's family is just all gone and he's left in sackcloth and in ashes and in ruins and he's mourning and it goes through this long process of grief and mourning and trying to make sense of it all and then at the end of the book he has um, a new family. We understand that that's um, somewhat not satisfying because there's loss for uh, Job in the same way that there's loss for Naomi. The Lord doesn't always make sense of all that, but what he does do is he restores and redeems life, even in its messiness and brokenness. And we're going to see through, throughout the book, we see that the two great issues presented all throughout Ruth have to do with food and fertility. Food and fertility are at the heart of the problems and the destruction and the difficulty that Naomi is experiencing. It's because of food and the lack of it that there's a famine in the land and they have to go to Moab. It's, it's because of that that they are in the fields of Moab. Um, it's, it's as a result of that um, that causes Elimelech and Malon and Kilion to die. They come back during the harvest, another issue around food. Uh, around food, Ruth says in chapter 2, let me go to the fields and work. And so Ruth goes out early and she begins to work in the fields, all surrounding the gathering and the processing of food for their daily survival. Food insecurity was a real issue for them, uh, and it is for many people today, but I think it's lost on many of us um, as a result of our abundance of food. But for them, and for these two widows, food is a major issue. Um, it shows the, the beauty of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer who is always giving food, right? He gives Ruth food and she has enough leftovers from their lunch encounter of wine and bread to have leftovers for Naomi that night. He also gives her bushels of grain. He also loads her up with 100 pounds of grain at the end of the harvest and she takes that home. Um, Ruth and Naomi lack nothing um, as God meets their need in, as a result of food. But it's not just food that... Uh, form the backdrop for the story of Ruth and Naomi. It's also fertility issues. It's the lack of children. The barrenness in the wombs of Ruth and Orpah have compounded Naomi's troubles. And even today, I think that might be kind of lost on us. Um, if God puts a person in the position of widowhood, uh, there is still a social provision in our culture through social security and other government programs and uh, other ways that they can find help. But for this particular culture, uh, this would have been reducing Naomi to a prominent member with a husband and sons to the lowest position an Israelite citizen could get to um, as someone who doesn't have property rights, as someone who doesn't have sons to take care of her. And it would have put her long into years as a working class person, maybe even into a place if she wasn't able to work as a, a beggar. But in the process of this, 
Ruth chapter 4 shows us a, 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 a redemptive ending. Ending. There's restoration. God restores Naomi's life, and he sees her brokenness, and he meets her in the broken places, and he begins to mend her, and he heals her wounds, and she goes from being pleasant Naomi in the beginning to bitter Naomi in the middle to now she's pleasant and her life is um, is different. She's a better version of herself. And that reminds me that it's not the absence of adversity, pain, trials, hardships, difficulties. It's not the absence of that that makes your life and your relationship with God meaningful. It's actually the presence of trials and hardships and adversity and difficulties and struggles that causes your faith to endure. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says to count it all joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because this produces something in you. So many of us spend our entire lives trying to avoid pain, trying to get over struggle, trying to get through difficult times when God is constantly calling us back to it because it refines us and it purifies us and it sanctifies us. Don't be too quick to want to get out of the storm. It's because of the storm that Naomi becomes pleasant Naomi again and sees the restoration of her life. Jesus redeems and restores broken lives. If there's any note that you can take here today, it's this. Listen closely. You can tell this to anyone. You can tell this to neighbors. You can tell this to coworkers. You can tell this to friends and family members. They don't have to come to church to hear this message. They can hear it from you directly. And that is that the overarching theme of Scripture is that God redeems and restores broken lives, okay? You can say that, you can live that, and you can proclaim that. Um, I'm living proof of that in that I was uh, raised in a quasi-spiritual, semi-culturally Catholic background, but identified more in atheism and immorality. And it wasn't until later in my teen years uh, that I had racked up uh, such a destructive series of relationships and bad choices that I got to a point where one night I got on my knees um, and cried out, God, if you're real, if you're really out there, if you're really real, I need you to help me because I can't do this any longer. The very next night, a man going door to door, sharing the gospel, came to my doorstep and shared the gospel with me. And Jesus redeemed my brokenness and restored me to the point that now I am a different person than I would have been had I stayed on that trajectory. So the point of scripture, the overarching promises that you can count on is that if you're entangled in sin, if you're just completely surrounded by a guilty conscience and you've sinned and you've made a mess of your life, you've, you've brought destruction through your own sinful choices or maybe sinful choices have been enacted upon you and you're still reeling through the difficulties of others' circumstances. The point in life is that if you repent of your sin and you seek Jesus, you can find redemption and restoration. That's true for now. That's true in Ruth's day. That's true in Naomi's day. That's true a thousand years into the future should Jesus not return. And that is the truth of Psalm 34 that this poor person cried out 
And Jesus rescued him. He says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He is near to those who are crushed in spirit. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in the shadow of his wings. The prayer of David over Solomon was, If you seek him, you, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. That's 1 Chronicles 28.9. In Jeremiah 29.13, he says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. In Isaiah 55, 1-7, just the summary of that seven verses, the Lord says that everyone who is thirsty, come and buy from me, and I will give you food, and I will give you water that satisfies. He says, why would you spend your money on something that does not satisfy your soul? Listen diligently to me, and eat that which is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let them return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Jesus echoes this in Matthew 7 saying, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And even at the very end, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door to me and lets me in, I will come in and eat with him. The echo of Scripture, a theme running throughout, the thread running through all of its pages, is that God redeems and restores broken, sinful people. That's a beautiful picture demonstrated in the book of Ruth, the Moabite who was a far away from God, a foreigner, and she was in a different country. And through the horrible things that happened to Naomi, Ruth comes to faith in chapter one. She makes this great declaration. Your God shall be my God. Your people shall be my people. Even when you die, I'm going to remain there and my bones will lie where your bones lie. And she makes that great proclamation of faith that Ruth is brought from far away, so close that throughout the entire book, she becomes the wife of Boaz. And you know, she's mentioned in the lineage of Jesus in Matthew chapter one. Ruth is, the Moabite, the foreigner, the slave girl, the servant who's gathering wheat on the ground. She is exalted to one of the highest places in the lineage of Jesus. One of only four women mentioned in Jesus's family line. Do you know who the other three are? You have Rahab, the prostitute who hid the the spies. That's um, Boaz's mother, if the genealogy uh, lines up, if they're not skipping a generation there. Salmon married Rahab. She's mentioned in Jesus's line. This Jericho woman, this Canaanite woman who um, was a prostitute. Jesus counts her as part of his line. Tamar, who was sent away by Judah and has uh, a child by Judah named Perez. Um, Bathsheba, um, who was taken by David. Um, Four women are exalted in the lineage of Jesus. In addition, only those five women are there. So in this closing section of Ruth, the narrator ties up some of the dominant ideas in the book, showing that God has not forgotten Naomi and Ruth. He's not forgotten them, and he's also not forgotten the people of God. Just remember the backdrop. 
Ruth was written in the time of the judges, and in the time of the judges, Judges 17, 1, uh, 17, 4, 18, 1, uh, Judges 20, and Judges 21, 25, they all echo the same verse. In those days, Israel had no king, and everybody just did whatever they wanted. And Judges 17 through 21 is a picture of violence, sexual abuse, um, horrible wickedness. It's a terrible chapter that def- defines perfectly what it's like for people to live without a, a leader in their life, for them to live without a savior in their life. And so against that backdrop, God is working redemption for a nation through the coming King David. It's a beautiful picture that's birthed out of the ashes of Naomi's life. So let's get back into the book and let's explore the particular specific ways in this chapter that we see God working restoration and redemption for Naomi. Chapter uh, 4, verse 13, uh, we just read in just one verse that Boaz marries Ruth. Um, I don't know what it looked like if there was a ceremony. Uh, I went to a wedding a few weeks ago and, um, and they had um, uh, you know, a ceremony and lots of people and a reception and, and we did premarital counseling. I tried to do six or seven sessions of premarital counseling with anybody that I, I do a marriage for. And I don't know what marriage looked like in this time, but I can tell you that, um, that it's almost presented in this sort of unromantic way that, that Boaz went to the city gate and he met the other redeemer and he gave him his sandal. And then Boaz acquired a field and he acquired Ruth as part of a property deal, right? That doesn't sound very romantic to us. Uh, that doesn't sound very glamorous to us. Um, it's true that that was the way that their redemption and their relationship came about was through a process that God set about. I don't know if there was a ceremony. Uh, you remember when Isaac took Rebekah after his mother Sarah died, um, the servant brought back um, Rebekah from uh, another country from where Abraham had sojourned before. And she came back and, and Isaac just took her in the tent and there was their marriage. That's how it kind of went. I don't know how this happened, but it was like a property agreement that Ruth came included in this sale. Um, that's not a very romantic or redemptive idea for us, but but for them, it was very significant uh, in that it um, her entire life consisted in this way was, uh, was through being married and uh, being married to Boaz. So one chapter, she gets married. I'm sorry, one verse, she gets married. Uh, then it says he went into her. That's biblical Old Testament language for sex. Uh, the Old Testament describes sex as going into or knowing a uh, picture of intimacy. And uh, I thought long and hard all week long, should I even include this? It makes us blush. We feel embarrassed to talk about this. But, but the truth of Scripture, and the, the reason why I leave this in here and that I'm saying this now, is that God isn't embarrassed about sex at all. He feels no shame about it. Uh, He created it. We're the ones who profaned it, and we're the ones who have perverted it, and sin has corrupted something beautiful. God designed it for procreation and for intimacy and for pleasure, but sinful people have maligned it, and our culture twists it and perverts it and turns it into something ugly and embarrassing and shameful, but that's not how God designed it, and that's not how God views it in the boundaries of a marriage relationship. It is a beautiful 
picture of Jesus and his intimacy with his people. And sex points to that. We just have a skewed view of it, of our culture. But the Bible in no way ever apologizes for it. It doesn't blush when it talks about sex. It doesn't blush when it talks about marital intimacy. And it's something that the church needs to understand, that it's not a topic that we should shy away from, but something that we should lead our young people and especially um, our marrying uh, people into a biblical view of what sex is designed for and how God uses it in a good way to build up his people. Scripture uses in verse 11 in chapter 4 that it was in this way that Ruth builds up her house. The building of the house happened through godly offspring and through godly parents. That's described as the building up of the house. Look back at verse 11. All the witnesses who watched Boaz redeem the field and redeem Ruth and redeem Naomi, they all said in verse 11, we're witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. If you were to follow those words, built up, built up, built up, you'll see that in the process of family relationships, godly parents model for children a sincere relationship with God, a sincere connection to Scripture, and a sincere effort to follow the Lord and to worship the Lord all the days of their life. And in that way, it builds up their houses, but it also builds up the house of God. Most of our baptisms over the last five years have come as a result of our efforts in family equipping parents to disciple their children. Children are hearing the gospel at an early age, seeing their parents live it out and being baptized as a result of not just hearing the words, but seeing their parents live it out. And this builds them up. Contrast that with Proverbs 14.1. It says, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Contrast that with Deuteronomy 25 and the brother who refuses to build up his house, he gets the shoe taken off and spit in his face. And in Deuteronomy 25.10, it says that his house shall forever be called the house of the guy with one shoe. That's not much of an insult for us, right? <laughs> a one shoe house, we don't, that doesn't mean anything to us. But it was basically the worst insult that could have happened in Deuteronomy 25 was a person who destroys their own house who tears it apart by sin, who refuses to follow the Lord in obedience and humility and repentance and brokenness and to follow the Lord, that's the tearing down of a house is the failure to live out your faith. Genesis 38, Judah and Tamar, Perez is the building up of the house. Let's move on. Verse 14, the women, verse 14 and 15, this together, um, all the community comes together and give this blessing to Ruth and Naomi. Listen to what they say to Naomi. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Let's take a really close look at these two verses. There's about five things that I want to show you in this. The first thing I want to show you is the women. The women surrounding Naomi come to her and give her this blessing. Now remember, Naomi has been all alone in Moab. She left Moab, the foreign country, and she comes 
home, and the women are the one who greet her. And they say, could this be Naomi? And she tells them, she shares about her pain, losing her husband and her two sons. She shares her pain with the community of faith and says, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter for the almighty has made me bitter and bringing me back empty. I want you to see here that her peers, the community of faith that she returned to in Bethlehem, she didn't have to do that. Naomi could have stayed in Moab. She could have moved anywhere else in Israel. She did not have to come back to Bethlehem, but she returns to her family of faith and to the relationships of faith. She doesn't isolate herself here. She made herself known to people in the midst of her pain. And in the midst of her pain and her suffering, they surrounded her. And, and almost in this way, now they get to rejoice with her and her victory. You see that? Oftentimes, we don't want to walk and live in biblical community. We want to isolate ourselves until we have everything kind of worked out and buttoned up and sewed up. And, and so we, we, we isolate ourselves from the body of believers that God has called us to walk with. But it wasn't this way for Naomi. She came and was willing to share her bitterness and her pain and her suffering and her difficulties and her trials. And she lived it right there with them. And then in the process of that, that community was able to celebrate with her the victory and the restoration that God has brought. And it was that much sweeter that all the women shared her joy with her. They also said, blessed be the Lord for conception. Blessed be the Lord for giving you this redeemer, the child um, Obed. Blessed be the Lord for conception. That's the second thing I want to bring out about these two verses. First of all, praise is due to the one who is the author of life. The author of life, God bringing life at the point of conception. We understand that conception, it doesn't begin at birth, that in Psalm 139, we understand that you knit me together in my mother's womb. The womb being opened or closed is a function of divine sovereignty. And as a guy, I don't fully appreciate this or even really understand this. Others may not fully appreciate this, even women, if pregnancy has come easy, but if you struggle to conceive, or if you're childless, or if you've miscarried, or if you've had an abortion, in all those situations and others, you realize and appreciate the gift of conception and how it is that God provides it. Listen to the way the Lord's involvement in the birth of this child is not just an important statement for Boaz and Ruth. It's also an, an important part of the entire redemptive thread of the story of the Bible. Throughout the biblical narrative, God intervenes in order to bring forth children who are significant in redemptive history. Think about it. Think about the women who were previously childless that God uses the birth of the children to do something significant in redemptive history. In Genesis 21, Sarah cannot conceive until the Lord intervenes and she's long past the age of being able to conceive, but the Lord gives her a child. As a result, Isaac is born, even past his age. In Genesis 25, Isaac's wife, Rebekah, is also unable to have children, but the Lord answers Isaac's prayer, and she conceives giving birth to Jacob and Esau. In Genesis 29-30, God enables both Leah and also Rachel, who is barren, to give birth. 
the mothers of the people of God. They conceived the 12 children and become the tribes of Israel. Later in the Bible, Hannah is barren, but the Lord grants her the ability to have a son who is Samuel, who heralds the coming of King David. In each case, God is saying, keep your eye on this child. He will play a vital role in accomplishing my purposes. And in Ruth, it's almost like the narrator wants us to see that Ruth belongs to this significant group of women who are previously barren and can't conceive, but then have a child who is significant in redemptive history. We'll see later on that Ruth is a part of the the line of David uh, toward the end of this chapter. Uh, it says that they've not left you without a redeemer. Um, I, I couldn't I ask the question, is the redeemer Boaz? Is the redeemer Obed? Uh, ultimately, we understand that the redeemer is God and that Obed is the evidence of redemption. He's the little R redeemer in their culture, the leveret marriage. The redeemer was the one who held the property rights. Obed is the little R redeemer. That is the property rights for Malon, Kilion, and Elimelech, and Naomi's property is now put into the name of Obed. He does not have access to Boaz's property, even though Boaz is the earthly biological father. Now, Obed, he perpetuates the property of his dead relatives, Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion. That's what it meant to be a kinsman redeemer. But it seems like they're putting a lot of pressure on this kid, right? Uh, He's a redeemer. He's a restorer of life in the next verse and a nourisher of your old age. Um, that's a lot of pressure to put on a toddler, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't have grandchildren, but uh, those of you with grandchildren, I hear that it's like this, that the grandchildren, a whole new world opens up and a whole new joy um, opens up when your children have children and, and you can sugar that kid up and you can send it home. You don't have to discipline that kid. Uh, you can just enjoy that kid and then you, you can go home and go to bed and that kid is, you know, stuck, um, sugared up with their parents. Um, I saw a sign recently that un um, Um, unsupervised children will be given an espresso and a puppy. Um, Grandparents can do that, right? They have the joy of just giving the grandchildren whatever they want, and they don't have to watch that thing come unglued uh, a couple of hours later. But this does feel like a lot of pressure on little Obed, right? He's a restorer of life. Uh, He's a nourisher of your old age. He's a redeemer. How do we make sense of this, especially in our um, Western perspective of child-centered parenting, right? Child-centered parenting makes your children, elevates them from where they are, who they are, into something bigger and puts the focus on them. And if, if the child wants something, they get it. And if they're allowed to sort of discipline themselves and work out their own growth in a child-centered and an unhealthy child-centered parenting way, um, oftentimes we put more pressure on kids to know more than they should or to do more than they should. For a long time, Julie was a children's minister at a large church in Oklahoma City. And Every single year at the time when children would go from one grade to another, we would kind of on the side giggle because parents would come up to Julie and they would say, uh, I know that my child is still three or still four, but, but they're way advanced and they're way more special and they're way more exceptional than all the other kids. They're already doing this and this and this and this, and they deserve to be uh, promoted two or three grades further. And it's just like a parent, right? To think more highly of their child and to think that it's more exceptional and more special than anybody 
everybody else's child and to compare their children to everybody else's and to see their own as a head above or head and shoulders above everybody else. That feels like what's happening with Obed when all these women around are saying he's a redeemer and a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. But what's happening here? In our view, it's wrong, but in their view, it's not because they, they don't see Obed as their Messiah or their hero or their savior. He's simply the evidence of redemption. He's a child and there's no pressure for him to be anything more than a child. But with the child come the property rights that perpetuates the name of the dead. And because of that, there's a title, Kinsman Redeemer. Not capital R, Jesus Redeemer. Little r, property rights redeemer. He gets the property. He's the one who perpetuates the name. He's not the savior. He's just a child. Uh, he takes away Naomi's shame and her... And her um, it, it almost restores or redeems her past difficulties and trials. And then now she has a, a grandson and it's a beautiful thing. So that's what that means. Then they highlight who Ruth is. And this is probably one of the more beautiful parts of the book of Ruth is that a, a foreign woman, first of all, women in that culture, in that time, um, were just not esteemed. They didn't receive property rights. Uh, they couldn't testify in court. They couldn't own property. There was a lot of negative things that came with being a woman, but the Bible does um, a job, a good job of elevating women to a proper view in a complementarian sense and that God has made men and women completely equal, though with different roles different roles, but equal in value and dignity. Jesus himself elevates the value of women and that uh, women are mentioned in Jesus's discipleship and women are mentioned in scripture. They're mentioned in his, in his heritage and in his line. And, and so in many ways, when these women elevate Ruth, they say that she's better than seven sons. That would have been unheard of. Two sons would have been better than seven daughters-in-law, especially foreign daughters-in-law in that culture, in that time. But for Ruth, it's different. She's exceptional, and God made her this way. You know, Ruth never really speaks much in, this entire, in the entire Bible. Really, only 11 verses are about her. She has five substantial lines of those 11, and really only twice does Ruth say anything um, significantly, uh, something that even here builds our faith up 3,200 years later. In Ruth 1, verses 16 through 17, Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything from death parts me from you. Listen, if that's all Ruth had ever said, we would still be, I mean, that's an incredible declaration of faith and lifelong commitment and repentance. She says a few more things. She's humble and doesn't expect anything. In Ruth chapter 2, when Boaz blesses her, she falls on her face, bowing to the ground, and says, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? She quietly works in the natural sense of clocking in and doing her job. In Ruth chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, the reapers report 
to Boaz, this is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short break. And then Boaz blesses her and says, I heard what you did. I've heard what you did for Naomi, and he blesses her in that way. In chapter 3, when she uncovers her feet, he says, All my townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. That's how loud her actions are. And that phrase, she's a worthy woman, is the same one translated in Proverbs 31, verse 10, that says, An excellent wife who can find. There's a weird connection here. In all the commentaries, there seems to be a connection between the woman of noble character, the excellent wife, the worthy woman of Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, and Ruth. I don't know why that is, but it has something to do with the ordering of the Hebrew Bible. In the law and the prophets and the writings... After Psalms and Proverbs come Job and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, and then comes Ruth. So Ruth follows very shortly after chapter 31, and it's led many people in rabbinical writings to connect Ruth as the person that is being described in King Lemuel's instructions about a worthy woman. I'm going to say more about that next week. As a matter of fact, that's our text for next week, Proverbs 31. Many women hate that passage secretly. They kind of like it. Oh yeah, charm is deceptive, but a, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And they kind of like it, but they also know that she sews, she gets up early, she's making shoes, she's helping sailors, she's sowing a field, she's reaping. Like this woman just never stops. And so for a lot of women, they see Proverbs 31 as a weight to carry and not as a blessing uh, to be called a Proverbs 31 woman. So we're going to fully talk about that next week as an addendum to the book of Ruth, Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. So you'll have a greater understanding next week. Uh, For now, let's move on to verse 16 and let's wrap this book up. Uh, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and she became his nurse. That is that she became the babysitter for the most part. And the women of the the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Um, and then it gives this last genealogical reference going back to Perez and through Salmon. Salmon was the um, husband of Rahab. And so Boaz's dad, if we can take the genealogy Sometimes genealogies skip a generation, but if we can take it exactly as presented, the father of Boaz was Salmon, and Salmon's wife was Rahab from Jericho in the conquest. Um, They're mentioned in Jesus' genealogy as well. So the bigger picture of God at work here is that God redeems the lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, And he accomplishes a purpose through them, providing a son for Boaz and Ruth, a redeemer for Naomi, and ultimately a king for Israel, right? David was the greatest king, and he came through Boaz, through Naomi, through through Ruth here, and then ultimately a Messiah for the world. Talk about elevating a person. So let me conclude the sermon and the book of Ruth with this. Have you ever struggled to see God at work in a painful situation that you're in? Have you ever walked through just a really hard, junky trial and you say things like, God, I don't even know what you're doing here. 
Naomi could not have known the outcome of this tragic decade of her life. It's probably a chapter that she wanted to just finish and put behind her, right? Losing a son, losing another son, losing a husband, having no grandchildren, returning home empty and bitter. She had no idea what God was doing. But when we look at the ending of her story, by the end of this year of returning home, God has restored her life. He's redeemed her pain. He's met her where she was. And he's brought sense and redemption here. A few years ago, Lisa Turkhurst wrote, it's better to ask what than to ask why when you're trying to reconcile the circumstances you're in. It's natural for any one of us to say, why did this happen? Why am I here? Why, is, why am I going through this? And we seek answers like that. And it's okay to ask why. It's not a sin. Lisa Turker says it's, it, it's actually perfectly normal. Asking why isn't unspiritual. But listen close. She says, but if asking this question pushes us further away from God than drawing us closer to him, it becomes the wrong question. When all you want from God is an answer, think of Job. In the end, he didn't really get an answer. He never really understood the, the relationship between Satan and God and his righteousness and his suffering. He just asked essentially the question, what? In other words, now that this is my reality, what am I supposed to do with it? What can I learn from this? What part of this is for my protection? What are you shielding me from? What are you keeping me from that's unhealthy? What other opportunities are you building in that I don't yet see? What maturity could God be building into me? That's that James 1, 2-4. Consider it pure joy when you face trials, knowing that this builds up your faith. So it's more helpful to ask what now than it is to ask why. But even more than that, it's important for you to understand that you might not ever see what God is doing in the midst of your brokenness. About 10 years ago, John Piper wrote a tweet that said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three. He wrote a blog post following it because that was one of the most widely spread tweets in their ministry's history. So they said it again and they filled it out and he writes this. Not only may you see only a tiny fraction of what God is doing in your life, the part that you do see may make no sense to you. He then relays it to some scriptural examples. Paul in the jail in Philippi. Piper writes, you may find yourself in prison and God may be advancing the gospel among the guards and making the brothers free and bold through your imprisonment. Or you may find yourself with a painful thorn in your flesh and God may be using that pain and that thorn in your flesh as the power of Christ to become more beautiful in your weakness. 2 Corinthians 12. You may find yourself with a dead brother that Jesus could have healed. John 11, Mary and Martha, not realizing that God was preparing to show you a greater glory in the resurrection of Lazarus. You may find yourself sold into slavery, accused falsely of sexual abuse and forgotten in a prison cell, but God may be preparing you to rule a nation 
as he did with Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50. You may wonder why a loved one is left for so long in unbelief and hardness of heart and find that God is preparing a picture of his own patience and the deliverance of a powerful missionary as he did with Paul in Acts, Galatians, and 1 Timothy, Paul being an enemy of God and a violent persecutor of the church, only to be redeemed and then become the greatest missionary in the church. You may live in all purity and humility and truth, only to end up rejected and killed, and through your sacrifice, God may be making a parable of his son and an extension of his merciful suffering through your suffering. You may walk through famine, be driven from your homeland, lose your husband and sons, be left desolate with only a foreign daughter-in-law, and God may make you the ancestor of a king or the ancestor of the Messiah himself, as we see in Ruth 1 through 4. In all these ways, no matter what you face, God might be doing 10,000 things in your life that you cannot see, and the call for you is to trust him, and to love him through it all, understanding that you won't see everything and you may not get all the answers you're looking for. A few years ago, we used this illustration. We had a tapestry and all we showed was the back of it. And if you've ever seen the back of a tapestry, it's just crazy strings everywhere with no pattern and loose and some tied off and some taped and all in different ways. But Sometimes that's what our life can look like, but when you flip it around, there's this beautiful picture. You may not understand all that God is doing through your pain and difficulty of your current circumstances, but he may be working redemption in someone else's life or preparing a future or another situation for someone down the line that you just don't understand now. And the call for us is to trust him and to love him and to understand that his sovereign and divine purpose is good. It's good And it's good for you, and it's good for you to persist in faith. Father, we thank you for the redemption and the restoration that we see in the life of Ruth. Uh, What a gift this book is to us. Uh, In so many ways, it casts such a long shadow of the gospel pointing to a redeemer in Jesus. And so we thank you for that picture of the image that we have through the book of Ruth. We pray that you would take this word, that you would use it uh, for your glory and for your majesty. We ask that uh, that you would make yourself known through it. And maybe here today, somebody is struggling with circumstances and pain and not quite making sense of what you're up to in the midst of it. And yet the call for them is to trust you, to know that you're at work, even if they don't see you and even if they don't quite understand it fully yet. Would you give us endurance and patience and faith as we endure the trials that you bring our way by your sovereign will? We thank you for this book and we ask that you would use it for your glory and for your majesty in Jesus' name. Amen.